Well, this morning we're going to be carrying on our series in the book of Luke, and uh, we've been uh, working through this now for some time, uh, over the years, but we're now into chapter 18, and that passage that we had read to us earlier is the one that we're going to be looking at. Now I'm going to share with you this morning uh, things that convinced me that the Bible was true. Really, as I look back on my Christian life, uh, this was what convinced me that the Bible really was the Word of God, really was uh, the truth. Ultimately, that led to my understanding that Jesus really is God uh, and led to my faith uh, in the Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at prophecy. We're going to be seeing, uh, more specifically, a prophecy that Jesus made about himself concerning his death. Now, I say prophecy rather than prediction. Sometimes we use the word prediction, don't we? Because it's a little less jargony. But prediction gives the idea, doesn't it, that you're sort of guessing. You know, you might predict what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. That's a bit different from prophesying uh, what the uh, the, uh, weather is going to be like tomorrow. But in the end, who who actually knows what the weather's going to be like tomorrow at the moment? But uh, anybody can predict, but not everybody can prophesy. Now, when I was a young teenager, somebody gave me a booklet with verses from the Old Testament. And in the booklet, it showed how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. And that was the first time, really, that I grasped that the Bible was no ordinary book. Um, sure, books can be ahead of their time, can't they? You know, you've all read books that sort of seem to were written 50 years ago and they seem to talk about today. But really, the Bible doesn't do it like this, does it? It doesn't give, it, the Bible gives specific details. The Bible gives places and particulars. And I was astonished that as I looked at the Bible, that all this was foretold in the Bible. A reason that either it was written by a time traveller, or it was divine. That was genuinely my thoughts as as a young teenager. Uh, Yeah, it was a bit strange, wasn't it? A bit weird as a teenager. Well, still probably a bit weird uh, now. But I figured that actually, it would require several time travellers, if you think about it, to go back in time and write different books. And I figured in my young teenage head that God having inspired the book was more likely than multiple time travellers going back to write it. As I say, I was a bit of a weird teenager. But here this morning, we're not going to look at a specific prophecy from the Old Testament, but one from the New Testament. One from the mouth of Jesus himself to his disciples. And in Luke's Gospel, this is the third of such uh, definite, specific prophecies of his death. And uh, Jesus has been telling his disciples again and again that he's going to die. So our first point is, or it should be, Jesus' death was no surprise. Have a look with me again at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus knew about his own death, and he makes prophecies concerning his own death. Now, we don't often talk about these. We often talk about more the Old Testament prophecies um, that, that are made about Jesus. But there are people who believe that these things were sort of added in later. So liberal scholars give us two options. They say either that these prophecies were added later. But if they were, then all three of them were added in all three Gospels in incredibly similar ways. See my point? They actually have to be added not just once, but three times in each. That is very, very unlikely. And there is zero textual or historical evidence that they were added later. 
In fact, it's likely that Luke is following Mark's pattern as we follow Luke's gospel. So he seems to follow roughly the same order that uh, Mark does. So does Matthew. But that would mean that Mark's gospel was already there when Luke wrote his gospel. So it would have had to have been sort of added later to all three uh, in roughly the same place. So it just doesn't seem to make much sense. It, It must have already been there in Mark's gospel for Luke to take it and use it for his. The second option that they give us is that the gospel authors actually made up these prophecies after Jesus had died and rose again. Funny then that in their explanations of this, they actually come across the disciples as being quite dull, don't they? And quite uh, blind, really. This is probably one of the least disparaging ones uh, that we get in terms of them not understanding what's going on. Also strange, isn't it, that they would put untruths into the mouth of a man that they believe was God himself. If they did add then they they added it as something that he hadn't said, which is strange again if you believe that he was God. And if they did add them, as I say, there's three in in Luke's gospel, they did more than just add the bare prophecies. Actually, there are three specific prophecies about Jesus' death, but this is the ninth time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has mentioned that he's going to die, either in passing or as part of a parable. He says it in various ways, and it carries on throughout Luke's gospel. Soon after this, he will tell them the parable of the tenants, where the whole point is that the king's son comes and is killed. He'll institute the Lord's Supper, speaking explicitly of his death before he dies. On top of that, he predicts the destruction of the the temple. On top of that, he predicts Peter's denial. He does all sorts of prophecy there. So if they were added in after, they, they weren't just added sort of one or two passages. They've added in a huge bulk of the gospel. If they've made it up, then they've made up an awful lot uh, in the Gospels. So it's not just sort of adding here and there, oh, you can sort of be forgiven for adding a little bit. Actually, the whole structure of the Gospel is built around Jesus' death. So the most sensible conclusion is that Jesus here really is talking about his own death before he died. He knew that he was coming, and he knew specific details of what would happen. And this means that A... Jesus knows the future, seen in the other prophecies too, which is amazing just by itself, isn't it? But secondly, that Jesus went knowingly to his death. Without getting into the issues of free will and determinism, we'll do that tonight. (laughs) Thanks for whoever put in that question. Um, But um, he could have just avoided this, couldn't he, in a sense, if he knew that it was coming. Which meant that he went, not just knowingly, but willingly to his death. He willingly paid the price for sin. And that makes a nonsense of the claim that you sometimes get that Jesus' death on the cross was a case of cosmic child abuse by God the Father. Jesus was not a helpless victim on the cross. This was his plan. This had always been the plan, and he knew about it. So he went willingly to the cross. But if that's not incredible enough to know that Jesus knew about his death, how about this? Jesus tells us that the ancient prophets knew about it too. Jesus tells us that all that was written about him in the prophets was about to be fulfilled. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what he had in mind, 
But the language in verses 32 to 33 mirrors that of Isaiah 50. You'll find a few verses of that on the back of your notice sheets. Look out for the sort of um, matching imagery. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who would strike, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Do you see there, that's a prophecy that fits very, very closely with the language that Jesus uses of what's happening. Or how about Zechariah 13, just to take another example. Uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's just two. There are easily 20 separate Old Testament passages that speak about the events surrounding Jesus' death. If you don't believe me, go and Google it when you get home. From the method that he would die being pierced, to the money that Judas was paid, from the place of burial among rich men, to the casting of lots for his clothes. It's there in the Old Testament, hidden in plain sight, so to speak. And that doesn't just include his death, the prophecies in the Old Testament. It includes his resurrection, That God wouldn't let his Holy One see decay. It was seen in the way that Jonah lay for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish as though dead. In the predictions of the suffering and death of this one to come. And yet him being a priest and a king forever. How do those two go together except by resurrection? So the resurrection is right there in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that all this will be fulfilled. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, should it? And yet it seems to. On the other hand, Jesus' death was a big surprise. Have a look at verses 32 and 33. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now you think if there was so much in the Old Testament about Jesus' death, then why would it be a surprise? Well, one reason is that the first readers couldn't quite understand how the descriptions of Old Testament figures that were to come were all really fulfilled in the same person. You see this clearly in the questions asked to John the Baptist in John's Gospel. So again, it's on the back of your notice sheets. John chapter 1, 19 to 23. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of uh, the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The Jews here have at least three figures that they reckon are coming. The prophet in the line of Moses, as Moses had said, Elijah, as Malachi had said, and the Christ, as many of the prophets had said in the Psalms. Some even thought actually there'd be two Christs, one in the line of Judah and one in the line of Joseph. Now, putting the best spin on this, it must have been hard to work out which prophecies apply to which people. It didn't enter their minds that many of the prophecies 
applied to just one person. That the prophet and the Christ were one. That the suffering servant and the glorious son of man were one. You can sort of understand that confusion, can't you, in a way. And Jesus' language just seems to add to the confusion. Jesus describes himself here as the son of man. Now we saw in the video earlier that the son of man was this glorious figure who would rule the nations. The four beasts, the Gentile kingdoms, would be handed over to him and defeated. Yet here instead of the nations being delivered to him, he is delivered to the nations. He's delivered to the Gentiles. And that's a detail that's mentioned here for the first time in Luke's Gospel. It's sort of topsy-turvy. It's sort of the wrong way round. It's the opposite of what should be happening. The Son of Man was supposed to be given the nations, not given to the nations. And the language here is mostly of humiliation rather than exaltation. Yes, there's a resurrection at the end, but the focus is on the humiliating nature of his death. Mocking, spitting, flogging, shamefully treating... Literally insulting in various different ways. Now if I'd have been writing this, I'd have focused on the nails and the piercing and the pain. But Jesus here focuses on the shame, on the humiliation. He will be abased, he will be totally humiliated. And it comes about by him being handed over, literally betrayed to. And we know that it will be by one of his inner circle, one of the twelve. So this whole idea that this humiliated figure is the son of man, when the son of man was that exalted figure, it would seem like nonsense to the disciples. The closest thing I could sort of think of that we have in our culture is programs or films like Shrek, where if you think about the plot, the ogre gets the girl and the prince is the baddie. It's sort of the wrong way round to what it should be, isn't it? It's sort of topsy-turvy. And to add to the confusion, he describes himself in the third person as well, as he often does. He says, the son of man will rather than I will. So he could be talking about somebody else, perhaps. But it's not that Jesus is being unclear. He's being perfectly clear, isn't he? He's telling it as it really is. The problem is that what he's saying seems to make no sense to the disciples. (laughs) They haven't put the pieces together yet. And on top of that, they're spiritually blind. As we'll see in a minute. So in that sense, his forthcoming death was a big surprise. Especially when he's been going about talking about himself as the glorious son of man. But lastly we see Jesus' death was hidden from his disciples. Have a look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus is speaking plainly to them, isn't he? The third time, and he just comes out and says it, what's going to happen. It's not in a parable, it's not in some sort of strange uh, imagery, he just says it. But it's not that the disciples are thick. That's not what it's saying here. And it's not just that there's some confusion about the Son of Man and his relation to prophecy. As though if Jesus had sort of picked some cleverer disciples, then it would have been okay. Actually, something supernatural is going on. 
The theme of hiddenness has been going on all the way through Luke's gospel. The two texts most relevant to us, there's one in the next chapter that says that the whole, uh, this blindness to the gospel doesn't just apply to the disciples, but to the whole of Jerusalem with disastrous consequences. So if you just turn over the page to Luke 19, 41 to 44. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. See the similar language? For the days will come upon you and the enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem there is blinded to Jesus' identity. Jerusalem doesn't know what's going on. But there is hope. The other passage that really parallels this one in a a way um, also parallels the passage that we looked at last week with the little children. So this is Luke 10, uh, 21 to 22. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father... Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What he's saying there is actually understanding has been hidden. Which fits with what we're seeing with the disciples, isn't it? Hidden from whom? From the wise and understanding. So it wouldn't just be enough to sort of get cleverer disciples, because actually this is hidden from the wise and understanding. Who is it revealed to? It's revealed to little children. And we saw in the last passage, didn't we, that we're to come into the kingdom like little children. Ones who have nothing, no status, no claims, no understanding... And yet here it is, given as a gift. We receive the kingdom as a gift. But here the disciples haven't got it yet. Not yet, anyway. But Jesus tells us again and again in the Gospels, uh, for example in Luke eight seventeen, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. See that idea of reversal again, that what's hidden will one day be revealed and known and come to light. And in the context, it seems to be talking about their understanding. That actually what's hidden to them now will be revealed to them in the future. But what we see here is that this truth needs to be revealed. They can't grasp it on their own, however clever they are, however well they know their Bibles. Perhaps this is why this account is followed by the account of a blind man. As though it sort of mirrors the inability to see the truth. But it leaves us with a question. Who has blinded them then? Why is it that they can't see the truth? Well, it's a tougher question than you might think. So on the back of your notice sheets again, I think there's 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, note the small g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There it seems to be saying that the enemy has blinded people, which makes sense, doesn't it? He doesn't want them to see who Jesus is. But in that passage in Luke again, in Luke 10, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So who's doing the hiding? Is it God or is it the enemy? Sounds confusing, doesn't it? Well, the quick answer is that God is permitting the devil to blind people to the truth. Satan is preventing people from seeing the identity of Jesus. But this is not outside of God's control. And actually God can reveal the truth to whomever he wants. So the devil is on a leash, a bit like you see the way in Job. He can't do it without God's say. And it's God's choice then whom he reveals it to. Now, knowing all this should point us to three things as we consider our passage as a whole. The first thing is that Jesus' resurrection is what it's all about. That's what's being hidden here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is where it's at. Think about it. Through Luke's gospel, this is what Jesus has always been talking about. Think about it in the Old Testament. This is what the prophets were always talking about. This is what the devil doesn't want us to understand. And if your enemy doesn't want you to know something, then you can be sure it's important, can't you? It's no exaggeration to say that this is the key to the life, the universe and everything. And if we don't understand Jesus' death and resurrection like this, it should be a bit of a clue that we're not seeing things clearly like the disciples. Perhaps the truth is eluding us. If you don't understand that Jesus' death and resurrection was the most significant event in history, or if it hasn't been the most significant event, so to speak, in your life, then you certainly haven't understood Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, we call it Luke's gospel, don't we? The gospel of Luke. The good news. But actually, the biggest topic in it is Jesus' death. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. He was raised again that I might enjoy new life with him rather than the punishment of hell that I justly deserve. So if we don't grasp Jesus' death and resurrection, we don't grasp the gospel. So that's the first thing we see, that Jesus' death and resurrection is what it's all about. The second thing we, we, that follows from that is that we need to tell people about Jesus' death and resurrection. Now that might sound obvious, in a way, but every generation it's subtly undermined. It used to be, a generation ago, that if you'd asked someone for a verse to explain the gospel, you can think of one in your own heads now, I'm going to guess that most of us probably are thinking (laughs) something along the lines of John 3.16. Yeah? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, speaking of Jesus' death, For whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what generally we understand as the gospel, isn't it? That, up until recently, was the most famous Bible verse. But now you're more likely to get Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Now, it is a lovely verse, and it is a lovely promise, even if it's often ripped out of context. But it's not the gospel. Think about it. It doesn't even mention Jesus, let alone his death and resurrection. Actually, it's all about us. But it sounds easier and nicer, doesn't it? Who doesn't want to be told that they've got a bright future? Much harder and stranger to talk about a crucified Messiah who rose again. Now, the disciples didn't understand this, and people, when we explain it to them, often don't understand it. But this is the gospel, isn't it? Think of how the Apostle, Apostle Paul presents it. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, I didn't have space for these on the back of the sheet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So what was he going to tell us? What's the first importance? That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom. But we preach. What does he preach? Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. So I think it's going to be something inspirational at the end, but he says, actually, no, it's what they reject. You see, it's tempting, isn't it, to go with something that sounds more sensible or relevant or inspirational. But brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. And there is no other gospel. If we don't preach this, then we're doing the devil's work for him, aren't we, really? He doesn't want people to know it, and we don't want to tell it to people. Because we could get a room full of people, and I really think we could get a room full of people and tell them nice things, inspirational tips for life, you know, mention God from time to time, and lead them straight to hell. Because they neglected to actually tell them the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. Sometimes our friends, neighbours and family will be baffled as we want to talk about a man who died on a cross. Can't you talk about something a bit less barbaric? Can't you talk about something that makes a bit more sense? But take heart. When Jesus talked about it, people were baffled. When he talked about it to his closest followers, they didn't understand. But what this means is that thirdly, we need to pray. So the death and resurrection it's all about, we need to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to pray. This passage should be in great encouragement for us to pray. If only God can reveal these truths to us, then we need to pray that God would do that. The passage tells us that the Son can reveal himself to anyone. He can make the blindest person see. He can make the most ignorant sinner his. It doesn't depend on our intelligence to grasp these things. It depends on God revealing them to us. That's why little children can understand but the world's cleverest person couldn't. So you don't have to be a member of Mensa to be a member of the kingdom. Which means that Yorkshire is prime for the gospel, isn't it? I can say that as a Yorkshireman. <coughs> God can open anyone's eyes. So don't worry if you're not Carol Vorderman or Richard Osman. If you're less Wright brothers and more Chuckle brothers. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for anyone and everyone. But that also means as we pray, we need to trust. God doesn't reveal himself to everyone. 
does he? And it's a bit of a mystery in one sense. Why one person and, and not another? And the Bible doesn't give us the answer to that question. But it does tell us that God is fair and that God is good. We know that God doesn't make mistakes. And we must trust him if the answer to our prayer, to open, God's, uh, to open eyes uh, of our friends and family to him, we need to trust him even if the answer is no. Because God always gets it right. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. Because we also know that the Bible tells us that God always hears our prayers. As long as the person we're praying for is still alive, there's still hope, there's still time. It could be that the answer is not no, but not yet. I became a Christian when I was a young teenager. My mother didn't become a Christian until she was in her 60s. There could be human things which prompt us to believe, like seeing fulfilled prophecy, like seeing lives changed. But in the end, whatever age we are, whatever stage we're at, whatever our intelligence, whatever our understanding, it's God who opens our eyes. It's God who reveals it to us. So let's ask that God would help us to see the centrality of this, his death and resurrection, and help us as we tell our friends and neighbours the good news about all that the Lord Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus' death and resurrection. Father, thank you that he spoke plainly about it. And Father, thank you that we can see that these things were not made up, they weren't added in. But Jesus really did go willingly and knowingly uh, to his death. And Father, we want to thank you for that. We want to thank you for the Lord Jesus and pray that you would open our eyes afresh to see anew the glory of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray for our friends, for our family, for our neighbours. Father, for people that we meet, we pray that you would open their eyes. Help us to trust you as we pray and help us to trust you, Father, as we, um, we see you open the eyes of some and not others. Father, we pray that we would trust in your goodness and in your wisdom and not our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.